Welcome to the Barrier Breakdown, Disrupting Mental Health Podcast, where we talk about the clinical and practical issues that face those working in the mental health industry. Welcome to this week's episode of The Barrier Breakdown. My name is Erin Mullineau Bailey, Chief Operating Officer at Cognitive Behavior Institute, and my co-host, Dr. Kevin Caridad, the CEO and founder of Cognitive Behavior Institute. On this week's episode, we have a very special guest, Dr. Rihanna Elise Anderson. Dr. Anderson is a clinical and community psychologist and an assistant professor in the University of Michigan School of Public Health. Dr. Anderson works to facilitate healing in Black families with practical applications of her research and clinical services, as well as through public engagement, teaching, mentorship, and policy recommendations. So thank you so much for being here with us today, Dr. Anderson. Can you tell us a little bit uh, as we start the conversation as to what led you to focus on the psychosocial health of Black youth and their families? Sure. Well, thanks again so much for having me as well. So To know me is to know who I am and where I'm from. It's to know that I am born in, uh, excuse me, how do I say it? Now you got me forgetting how I introduce myself. Born in, raised for, and returned to Detroit. That's how I think about myself. So Detroit as this urban center is not just a normal metropolis. It's a place that has the highest percentage of black people um, in the United States. So it's a way of thinking about growing up seeing some issues that were pursuant to Black folks and me wondering what I could do about that. And I think if you're a smart kid in these urban places, they say, oh, you should be a doctor, you should be a lawyer. And I always knew that those options were around. But I started thinking a bit more concretely about some of the issues that I saw in the surrounding neighborhoods and in my community to say, what would it be like if we didn't need a doctor to repair some of the struggles that we Uh, potentially saw on the body? What if we didn't need a lawyer to defend someone after a crime was committed? What if we could do more preventative work? So the the work that I started thinking about was just looking proximally around me. What's going on around me? What is something that's impacting the people who I see? And what are some of the preventative strategies that we haven't utilized? And that led me to psychology and this beautiful way of thinking about the mental health and well-being. How can we engage in approaches that would actually thwart some of these outcomes that people say smart kids like me should should look at as a profession. So that's how I got into this work. I really like a little bit more about your personal sorry about your personal experiences about about Detroit. Now recently I just begun to travel there on a regular basis. So I'd like to hear a little bit more about your experiences and kind of uh, yeah, let us know what it was like for you. Yeah. So and Erin, I'm excited to hear what you have to share too. But um, you know. I think by and large, it's a normal experience where you're a kid and you're exploring what's around you. You're playing with whoever's around you. You're excited about the world and you're growing autonomy. And at the same time, all of these elements that go into what your neighborhood looks like, right? So so as an example, um, where I would go to get fresh food would be a corner store or a, a gas station and not a grocery store. We didn't have grocery stores uh, close to us. And that became an issue when food deserts became more popular. But that wasn't a, a term that we knew growing up. It was just like you get your bag of chips or you get you know, something that's wrapped up from the store around you. And that's your food. 
right? Or there, there were plenty of fast food restaurants. So on the corners by me, there was a Burger King, a KFC, a Subway, a Little Caesar. So that, that was every single fast food restaurant nearby, but, but fresh food was not something that we brought into the house. And I, I actually remember going to grad school and someone teasing me about this when I was eating Cheez-Its, which for me was a healthy snack because it wasn't deep fried. It wasn't, you know, something that, um, that I thought was bad for my health. They were like, well, you're eating Cheez-Its. That's a lot of saturated fat and whatever. And I was like, this for us is healthy. Right. And, and it, it took me until grad school, it took me until now coming back to Detroit, where I'm realizing how some of those things that I grew up with weren't quote normal for other people. Right. And how they may have had large plots of land where they these kiddos could go run around and have that space. I had concrete, right? Or if they had, again, that fresh grocery store relative to what I had around me of prepared and um, uh, prepackaged foods, that, that that was not normal for us. So I, I say that, Kevin, because I think even some of the experiences that I had where something may have seemed normal for me. And I, I even hesitate saying some of them because I think folks would pathologize, but I'll give a quick example. We had an issue on our block where one of our neighbors um, experienced domestic violence. And the way that our block responded to that was that our, a gang that was on our block said like, this man isn't welcome back here and, and posted up on the street. Like you could see them being visible and, and not letting that person come back down the street, which for some people may sound really problematic and like, oh, there's gangs. But for me, understanding that was one of the protective mechanisms that were in place for our, our neighborhood and for that neighbor so that she would not face that again, that was something that I learned was a strategy. And, and I'll quickly just end that by saying some of the things that we do in psychology, in mental health, where we pathologize and we point a finger at some of these things in our communities, if there's not a proper understanding of why they even came to be and how to integrate some of those strategies into the work that we're doing, then we're, we're really missing how some children made it out of these communities alive and well. No, I, yeah, no, I hear you. It sounds like, you know, uh, adaptiveness, right? Just very nature. Sure. We have to we have to fill the gap whatever whatever we need it's just it's how we, how we act as humans yeah. sure yeah no i i think it's you know everything that you bring up is 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 so interesting and to hear it from someone who has that lived experience and could you talk a little bit about how racial stress and trauma has really become a public health issue yeah it i'll start by saying that it is important to have the American Public Health Association or the American Psychological Association acknowledging racism as these issues, right? Within, as a public health crisis or as a stressor for um, psychological well being. It's important to acknowledge that these things are around. It's something that I always think about with respect to. Uh, perceived versus received. And I'll, I'll say a bit about what the heck that means. So there is, if you study discrimination, you may see that there is this perceived construct that goes along with it. So a lot of the measures might ask about perceived discrimination, 
which I think is a slap in the face to people who experience it and have received this discriminatory or this racist way of being. And sometimes you can't even measure it, right? So I just talked about what my neighborhood looked like growing up, not having fresh air, fresh food, places to play. So that built environment was not something that I would have put my finger on as a five-year-old and said that that was racist, but it was. That school that had asbestos, which I went to every day, I didn't know that that was a, a function of racism, but it was. My inability to um, start some of my classes at the University of Michigan on the same level as some of my classmates who were just one district over, those are things that I learned in time were functions of racism, but couldn't put my finger on. So again, even us saying this idea of perceived is making it feel like for the people who have experienced this or received that this ongoing racial onslaught on their minds and on their bodies makes us feel like something isn't right with us, that we're imagining things. So I know you didn't ask that at all, Aaron, but I think it's really important to say that at the beginning because there has never not been a time where racism should have led to stress and trauma. So I, I'm saying that because if, if people are just now saying, wow, in 2021, we're just now putting the label on this, we're just now comfortable making it a, a, a state or nationwide mandate that we're considering this to be a stressor or a, a traumatic event, there is then to me been a disbelief that that could have been stressful or traumatic before this date and that there wasn't evidence somehow to support or suggest that these things were chipping away at the mental health and well-being of not only Black people, but everyone. And, and that, that is for me the, the last point on this, which is, you know, so many people turn to folk of color and say, how is racism and discrimination impacting them? But study after study shows what would happen to us all. We would be better people writ large. We would, we would have a better society if we did not operate from a sense of, of racial oppression and intolerance. There would be growth for everyone. We'd be healthier, we'd be wealthier, we'd be all of these things together. Yet there's a, a fear that by acknowledging it or by trying to fix it, people may lose power, people may, use, may lose their standing in society. And I think that's why we didn't acknowledge it for so long because there was a fear around what would happen to my slice of the pie if, if we um, try to make traction on that. So Erin, I went all over the place with that, but I hope that that addressed some of your question. It sure did. Can you also tell us about the Embrace program? Because this is really something that's important that I think our, our listeners are really gonna be interested in. Yeah, so Embrace is the best response to everything that I've said thus far. So again, as a kiddo, people said, what are the jobs that you can have? I eventually decided to be a psychologist and I wondered how all of the things that I saw around me that I knew were driven by racism, they were a function of racism, how I could help families talk about process, become aware of and do something about that. So it was really my political science background and my psychology backgrounds kind of coming together in one sandbox, trying to figure out what to do with each other. So, what we know is that Black families talk about race and racism at rates much um, more frequently and much more 
um, in depth than their counterparts. So again, if you have this protective factor that already exists within the community, why try to come up with something new? Why try to change the way that folks are doing it? How can we help to strengthen that or give additional skill around some of what folks are doing? So that talk that families are already naturally engaging in, we took that and thought about all of the cognitive behavioral therapy components that we could marry with that, all the trauma-focused CBT work that we could engage in and, and the racially relevant uh, components to that. So how do we bring all of these evidence-based practices, these protective components that already exist within communities and then that fine tuning of, of the culturally relevant pieces, how do we bring that together into one space? And Embrace was born. So it's a five session family-based CBT oriented uh, therapeutic intervention. And what we do is take families um, into their own treatment first. So parents and children are with their own therapist for a 30 minute session, then there's a break. And then we come together for a dyadic or a family session for 45 minutes to um, unpack some of what the families have talked about in their individual session. We love it because what we're doing is, again, utilizing all the components of both the practical and the empirical, and we're bringing this cultural style, which seems to really resonate with our families. The most important thing though, is that we're starting from a sense of pride. So the first session is all about Tell us about you know, your love of being black, what it's like to be within this community, all the great things that you see, all the strength. So we're building up that resilience and that, that strength because in sessions two, three, and four, we're, we're bringing up some of those challenges that may come along with your experience. And so we know we can't just uh, put that onto families first. We have to give them a supportive space to engage in that dialogue. So we're taking everything that we know from the empirical work and, and integrating that in a culturally relevant perspective. That's great. Uh, how long has this program been uh, been implemented and kind of, you know, how many families and kind of, what, what are you seeing? Yeah, so it started four years ago in Philly where I was a postdoc at the University of Pennsylvania. So we started it based on community wants and needs there. So we were able to, um, enrolled 20 families when we were in Philly in the pilot. And over time, um, now that I'm a professor at the University of Michigan, we uh, were gearing up to start our work with Detroit families in March of 2020. And if you know what month that was, then you know that our work got shut down pretty quickly. So we quickly tried to turn um, the gears and put it online. So we have a study enrollment even now of families. I will say, it's because we didn't have it ready to go online and it took us months to go, families were starting to feel Zoom fatigue as I sure am and I'm sure a lot of the listeners are as well. So it's been harder to enroll families because so many people are saying, I can't add anything else. I'm just, I am exhausted. I don't have anything. Even though they have also said that the content is something that they really want to talk about. So we've engaged in a lot of rapid response ways of thinking about this. So we have one day offerings or we've done um, town halls for kiddos to come in and talk with us. So we've tried to adapt as much as we can our content to the needs of families. Mm -hmm. I'm also working with the American Psychological Association's resilience program so that they can um, have these 
offerings that are available for families in their own time. So they don't have to, uh, to meet up with someone. They don't have to look decent for camera. They can just engage in it in this um, kind of passive way. So we're really thinking about how do we get materials to families in the most efficient way possible. But we have been pretty successful in the past few years with enrolling dozens of families and have learned just a wealth of um, material from them. So we're, we're totally grateful for our participants. Yeah, it sounds like you guys were really flexible uh, and really forward thinking, uh, likely, you know, with COVID throwing into the loop. So that's amazing to hear that you were still able to bring, um, you know, the presence of the program in some capacity through COVID. Are you thinking that an online component of this will always remain in the future? I'm sure that probably wasn't on your radar when you originally did this, but is, you know, we've kind of seen that having uh, a virtual presence is a great way to sometimes break down barriers for families that maybe live in even rural communities or don't have access to, you know, those kinds of things. So it kind of probably brings an, an extra side of your, you know, pro project that you may not have considered. So Aaron, we were totally thinking about it and that's actually what took us so long in the first place. So the, the goal was never to just flip it, right? So there's a whole evidence base on what makes online programs work. And we were just essentially saying, we'll, we'll just move our program to online. And some of the things that we know worked so well with Embrace in person was that physical proximity to people, were, were the leaning ins and the, the moving outs and just experiencing those moments. So I, I talked about the 30 minute individual sessions, then the 45 minute dyadic, those 15 minutes in between, we built in for snacks, for you know talking, for building up our rapport and that gets lost online, right? Like it just does not exist in the same way. So there are components that we know aren't there and we didn't want to just flip it um, just for the sake of, of having it available. So, so that, Aaron, in the future is something that we're gonna be spending time on. We have a, a five-year grant um, that's gonna allow us to do some testing between an online and in-person. And then again, that passive, like what does it look like just to get information and not unpack it with people? So we, we, have, we have a three-arm study that we're gonna look at in the future and it makes a difference arguably but at the same time is something better than nothing right so those are the questions that we're asking how do we reach scale when there are clearly millions more people than there are therapists and and we know that it's not going to be feasible for everyone to engage in this therapy so certainly questions that we're thinking about and certainly things that i want to do better rather than just doing you know this this patchwork project of putting something online Yes, Are you guys have... focus. Sorry, Aaron. No, Currently, no. In, it's such an exciting topic. I know. Uh, <laughs> we always wrestle when we and Aaron get excited. So, <laughs> with regard to this, is it specific to Detroit currently? I know you did a little bit of work in your postdoc back in Philly. Uh, because of the virtual nature, are you connecting to other universities or other facilities around the country? Yeah, so uh, the, certainly the goal for the next five years is to think about multi-site implementation. And I have colleagues at a number of universities in, in a lot of regions. So we're thinking about, you know, a balanced regional approach, um, what types of institutions are, are serving. So we're giving thought to it. So right now we did blast our information out nationwide to get a sense of, of who wants to participate and how we can serve folks. So we are seeing people outside of the state. 
at this point. But when we actually roll out a something that we hope is going to be more measured and we hope that's going to be a bit more conducive to folks not being fatigued and, and ready to engage in something online, then that will open up our ability to, to see folks regionally as well. That's awesome. We would absolutely love to further this conversation with you after you complete your study because yes. that will be uh, extremely interesting. And we can't wait to see, you know, how things unfold over the next, you know, couple months and years here. And um, that that would be amazing. So please do keep us in mind. <laughs> I will. I'm I'm sure when we publish our monster papers, I'll be like, everybody, listen to what happened. We finally have our data after years, and COVID did not slow us down. So that that's something we're looking forward to. Absolutely. Absolutely. And where can our listeners learn more about the Embrace program? Is there information available online or how can yeah. they learn more? Yeah, you know, there are a few Embrace programs out in the world. So it might take a few Googles or two to find us. But um, generally speaking, either on uh, social or on our website, you can find us at The Embrace Program. So um, feel free to, to check out our website, theembraceprogram.com. You can email us at theembraceprogram at gmail.com. And then again, on socials, um, we're either Embrace Program or The Embrace Program, and you'll be able to find us there. And that program, I know it's family directed, but is there also a, a component of like clinical dissemination? So if someone else mm -hmm. wanted to create and come get trained or some type of training, do you guys have that? Kevin, you're on it. So that is something that we're putting together right now. So you're welcome to check out our website or to email us and we'll put you on a list for when we're ready to roll that out in the fall. Outstanding. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for being with us, Rihanna. We certainly appreciate all your expertise and all the amazing things that you're doing within your community and all across the state, it sounds like. So we really hope to stay in touch and uh, hear about the results on uh, this incredible project that you guys, as you continue to grow it. Thank you so much, Erin and Kevin. It's such a pleasure. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much to our listeners for tuning into this week's episode of The Barrier Breakdown. We hope that you join us again and stay safe and healthy. Take care. Thank you for listening to The Barrier Breakdown, Disrupting Mental Health. Listeners can find all of our episodes on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Podbean. For more information and to learn about upcoming continuing education events, check out our website, cbicenterforeducation.com, our Facebook pages, Cognitive Behavior Institute, and CBI Center for Education, as well as our Instagram at Cognitive Behavior Institute, and our Twitter at CBI underscore Pittsburgh. Don't forget to like, comment, and subscribe. We hope you'll tune in for another guest next week.